This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado's coal industry appears to be in trouble. Mines have laid off roughly 1,000 workers in the last few years, and coal production in the state has fallen 50 percent since 2004. The state isn't alone. Production has dropped and miners have lost jobs across the country. President-elect Donald Trump has repeatedly promised to bring those jobs back. We're going to put the miners right here in Colorado back to work. We're going to put them back to work. Who's a miner? Get ready to go to work. You want to go back to work? You're going to go back to work. Your jobs will come back under a Trump administration. Your incomes will go up under a Trump administration. Your taxes will go way, way down under a Trump administration. That was from an October rally in Grand Junction. I'm joined now by Keith Stockton, an instructor at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business. He studies energy, science, and technology. Keith, welcome. Thanks. Donald Trump has frequently described the Obama administration's policies as, quote, the war on coal. He says the key to bringing back jobs in coal is to do away with the current administration's rules and proposed rules governing the coal industry. We spoke recently with an industry representative and environmentalist. Stan Dempsey is the head of the Colorado Mining Association. If you take the foot off of the coal industry's throat and you re-examine or reduce the regulatory burden on the industry, as well as the electric utilities. Those electric utilities are going to make economic decisions to use the most affordable fuel, and coal is going to be you know, a vibrant contributor to that as it is today. And here's the environmentalist. Uh, Pete Maysmith is the executive director of Conservation Colorado, a major Colorado environmental group. The promises of bringing back coal jobs are easy to say on the campaign trail, but just don't match the reality of what's happening in national and, importantly, global markets. Because ultimately, it's markets and not presidents that control whether global commodities like oil thrive. And the answer right now is the market for coal has been, and I believe will continue to decline. Keith, as we mentioned, Colorado's lost roughly 1,000 coal mining jobs over the last few years. Which of these two views is right? Well, neither is right. Hmm. Both need to have – need to be elaborated upon. Okay. So, for example, it is true that nationwide coal demand is down. And coal demand is down because electricity demand from coal-fired power plants is down. Hmm. So the customer doesn't need as much coal as he, as they used to. What primarily drove that is two factors. Number one, the mercury and air toxic standards that first came out in 2011. That drove coal-fired power plants to consider how are we going to meet those standards. Now, there's been a number of court cases that went all the way up to the Supreme Court in 2015. But in general, most coal-fired power plants have, who have decided to stay in business and meet those standards have implemented those standards at a cost. Now, that in itself would say, well, that wouldn't necessarily drive coal demand down. We saw a similar thing in the early 1990s with the sulfur dioxide emission standards. Hmm. The other factor that really comes into play is the fact that natural gas prices have plummeted over the last decade. Uh, roughly by about two-thirds since, let's say, 2006. So what power plant operators are looking at, they're like, 
what's the most cost-effective way for us to reduce mercury and other toxins? And there's two options. One is to put in very expensive emissions control technology. The other would be shut down our coal plant and switch to natural gas. Because it's cheaper. Exactly. So the combination of those two factors, a regulatory as well as the price of natural gas coming down, which frankly is because of horizontal drilling and fracking, has led to a dramatic reduction in the demand for coal in the United States. So then did the Obama administration, as Trump says, wage a war on coal? I don't believe that's the case. I believe what the Obama administration was striving to do uh, back when the MATS regulations came out in 2011 was to indeed decrease the pollutants coming from a coal-fired power plant. It happened to be coincidental that very smart people in academia and very smart people in the oil and gas industry came up with this new technology that said, hmm, let's get natural gas out of shale. And so what happened was that, again, utilities said, we'll switch to natural gas instead of putting in emissions control technology. Yeah. And as you heard our industry representative, Stan Dempsey, say he blames regulation for coal problems. Environmentalists, Pete Maysmith, argues the markets favor natural gas, renewable energy, and that's to blame. But you're saying it's more nuanced than that. Well, it's it's they're both correct, but they're both incomplete answers. So um, I would say what what we look at when we go forward from here is that it's very unlikely, in in my opinion, that coal-fired power plants will be rebuilt or restarted. So we've seen this dramatic reduction over the last six to seven years in coal-fired generation and coal plants and consequently in coal mining in the United States. The question now goes, where does coal go from here? And there are two potential um, scenarios. Number one is that President Obama's clean power plan becomes becomes fact, becomes implemented. And that clean power plan uh, has a goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 32 percent over the next 20 years. And that would drive down coal demand even further than where it is today. But Trump says he wants to kill that plan. Now, if if, uh, President-elect Trump does kill that plan, it's likely that coal-fired power plants will not uh, decrease in the amount that they would under the clean power plan. And consequently, coal mining in the United States wouldn't continue its continued decrease as well. So would it stay steady then? Roughly. Roughly. I mean, there's different forecasts from different individuals that say what's going to happen to the coal uh, mining industry. But with a 40 percent reduction in production over the last six or seven years, you could say that would probably stay relatively constant. Mm -hmm barring any increase in coal exports. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Keith Stockton with the Leeds School of Business about Colorado's coal industry under a Trump administration. Uh, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper said earlier this year that he was working to create a version of the Clean Power Plan with similar goals for the state. And he said recently that the carbon reductions in the federal Clean Power Plan should still be a goal for Colorado. If those goals held here in the state, will the state's coal industry be less competitive than other states? Well, the coal industry and uh, the electric power industry are are separate. Industries. They're separate. Okay, they're connected, but yeah. they're but they're separate. 
So uh, Colorado coal industry um, has, if we're just focusing purely on Colorado, mm-hmm. has plummeted in its production. I did a, a quick and dirty estimate that uh, Colorado production this year will be about 12 million tons based on the production history that we have through the first six months of this year. That's a third of what it was a decade ago. And also, let's put that in perspective. So Colorado produces, by my estimate, 12 million tons this year. Our friends to the north in Wyoming, roughly 375 million tons. Hmm. So we are, we are a very, very, very small player in the national uh, coal production industry. Roughly 2% of annual production is coming out of Colorado. The coal industry argues that natural gas prices have historically been very volatile. And as the price of natural gas goes back up, the regulatory pressure on coal goes down and coal becomes competitive again. I mean, that seems – is there truth in that? There's truth if you look in the past. So in the past, yes, natural gas prices have been very volatile. Uh, All one has to look back is uh, I believe it was 2005 when Hurricanes Katrina and Rita came through and the price of natural gas skyrocketed briefly. But all forecasts that we see – uh, in the next 10 to 20 years show that because of our shale resources that we have in the United States, natural gas is going to remain, as I tell my students, cheap and abundant. It's a different time now. It, it definitely is. And it's been driven by the technology of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. What about this discussion of clean coal? Uh, you know, What is that and how likely is it to keep the industry going? We've, we've heard President-elect Trump say that a lot, clean coal, clean coal. Mm-hmm. Well, clean coal is often referred to uh, facilities that are able to cap- capture the carbon emissions that are currently coming out of the smokestack un- unregulated today. Mm-hmm. And so the idea behind clean coal is to capture those carbon emissions and then sequester them underground. There is one facility that is currently under development. It's the Kemper facility in Mississippi. It is way over budget. It is uh, extraordinarily inefficient economically to capture this coal, uh, this carbon dioxide, excuse me, from coal. And in my, again, my opinion, and I'm going to opine here a little bit, the idea of clean coal is a placeholder for the coal industry to push off regulation. It's realistically not economically feasible to implement clean coal technology throughout the United States without dramatic increases in electricity prices. And you, we have to talk about the fact that there are people that depend on the coal industry. Uh, coal miners earn an average of $135,000 in pay and benefits. In a recent interview with Colorado Matters, Governor Hickenlooper conceded that these jobs, in his words, would be hard to replace if the industry doesn't recover. Is that your view? Yes, yes. Think of think of yourself on the Western Slope as a coal miner. Um, you're paid very well uh, with a high school degree. That's a very dangerous job, but you and maybe your father and your grandfather all worked in the coal industry. And now we're going to close these coal mines because of lack of demand from the electric industry. What are these individuals going to do for a living? Oh, we can train them to be solar installers is one thing that I hear. Mm. Okay, well, that means you need to move to the front range and probably take a 50 to 70 percent cut in pay. So what options are there in your eyes? I know you're an analyst, but, you know. 
<laughs> wow, that's a, that's a really that's a uh, maybe maybe I should run for political office. Um, that's a real tough one to 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 determine. Um, I I don't have an answer to that. Perhaps off off the top of my head, uh, we could retrain these individuals to work in the oil and gas industry hmm. because those are relatively high paying jobs. A typical oil field worker can make a hundred thousand dollars a year. But that would require retraining. That might require many of them to move. And that's an expensive and difficult proposition. Keith, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Keith Stockton is an instructor in the Center for Education and Social Responsibility at the Leeds School of Business at CU Boulder. Just ahead, we continue our look at Colorado under the Trump administration. CPR's Megan Verley will join us. She's been listening to the concerns and hopes of refugees and immigrants. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Around one in five people who live in the city of Aurora were born overseas. Some have been here for decades. Others, like Somali refugee Ferdouz Ahmed, resettled in Aurora last year. This is my home and this is my country. So I don't want people to tell me you are going back or you are this or you are this. I don't want to hear that. But that's the message many refugees, like Ahmed, are getting from the presidential election. She says she's heard a lot of worry about her place in this new country and that it might not be as secure as she thought it was. As a refugee community, they have confusion about what is going on, what is people talking about, like deporting people or taking them back where they came from. Ahmed took her questions to a community forum in Aurora last night. It was arranged by government agencies and nonprofits to try to address some of the concerns the city's refugees and immigrants have about what their lives will be like under President-elect Donald Trump. CPR Megan Verley was there, and she joins me now. Hello, Megan. Hi, Nathan. Let's start with the groups that convened this meeting. Uh, who exactly was behind this? Well, the idea grew out of a lot of the nonprofits that serve Aurora's newcomers, uh, organizations like the Aurora Mental Health Center, the Spring Institute. They've been talking to each other since the election about all the uncertainty and fear they're hearing from the people they work with, and they wanted to come together to do something about that. So they reached out to the public schools, the police department, the DA's office, and a local elected officials. They put together this panel that was meant to reassure immigrants and refugees that the city has their back, so to speak, now and going forward. And Aurora has had some problems recently. Earlier this week, uh, there was news that a black family has now been targeted twice with racist graffiti. I understand Aurora's chief of police was there last night. Did he address the case? Chief Nick Metz did allude to the crime, uh, and he used that as a way to urge people to report any incident they encounter that might count as a hate crime. And so it's important that you call 911. Do not doubt yourself. Do not worry that I'm not sure if I don't know if I want to bother the officers, they're really busy. No. Our officers are committed to making sure that these crimes are investigated fully. According to the Denver Post, Aurora police have investigated six bias-related crimes in the past month. That's more than usual. Hmm. We also learned this week that Aurora and some other Colorado cities say they won't assist federal authorities to identify or detain undocumented immigrants if they're asked to do so by the Trump administration. Did Metz go any further into that? He reiterated that point that when it comes to immigration status, the police just do not care. But there was this very pointed question from someone in the audience about 
what Colorado's elected officials are prepared to do if the president-elect retaliates against police departments that refuse to cooperate with deportation policies. You know, will they still be standing up uh, if a Trump administration tries to withhold federal funding from them, which was a promise that Trump made on the campaign trail? I'll say no elected officials really jumped up to answer that Mm. right away. Um, There were a couple of newly elected state representatives in the audience who voiced support for the police department, but there wasn't really anything concrete they could say. What other questions do the audience have? Well, people want to know whether and how immigration policies might change under the new administration. Uh, several said they were worried about immigrant students being bullied, uh, you know, teased about being deported, things like that. On the flip side, there was a question from an Aurora resident who came wanting to learn more about how the U.S. vets potential refugees before they're resettled in here uh, to, to prove they're not a risk. And given Monday's attack by a Somali refugee on the Ohio State University campus, I imagine that question, how the U.S. decides who gets to resettle in this country, uh, maybe on a lot of people's minds. That attack was definitely on this gentleman's mind. His name was Louis Marion. Uh, and I talked with him a bit after the meeting. He told me he just didn't see the need for this type of gathering. No one said anything when Obama said what he said about people clinging to their guns and Bibles. We didn't have a meeting like this. No one stood up for us. And now we're getting this because Trump got elected? Is it a double standard? Ironically, Marion had one of the few questions the panel could actually really answer because there is a clear policy outlined for vetting refugees before resettlement. Uh, Most other people there last night had questions about what may happen under a Trump administration. And that's all just incredibly hypothetical at this point because he hasn't taken office yet. So they just really couldn't get the kind of answers they were looking for. And I bet that was frustrating for people to hear. It was. Uh, I met a woman last night named Brenda. She's undocumented, so she didn't want to give me her last name. She came to the U.S. from Mexico in 1989. She has four American children. And she came to last night's meeting hoping to learn how her situation might change under the incoming president. But she left without any answers. I mean, they, they try to reassure us. But at the same time, you know, they can't really tell us anything because they don't know either. Brenda told me that her mother's been applying for U.S. citizenship. But after the election, she's so worried about the future, she's been considering returning to Mexico instead. There seems to be a lot of questions out there and not many answers yet. I think that's the bottom line. And the big theme, uh, you know, I heard it both from the community members in the audience and from the officials on the panel. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you, Nathan. That's CPR's Megan Verlee. She's been a reporter for us for several years and just recently became an editor here. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Obviously, I haven't quite given up my reporting (laughs) hat yet. Still to come, your fervent feedback to Ryan Warner's recent interview with the co-chair of Donald Trump's Colorado campaign. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Ryan Warner with your passionate feedback now to my interview with Robert Blaha, who co-chaired Donald Trump's Colorado campaign. He's now helping Trump's transition team regionally. The part of the interview that most caught your attention was when I asked Blaha about the glee among white nationalists over Trump's election. Well, what I find interesting is that it keeps coming up. And it's interesting that it seems that the the mainstream media likes to talk about this. Mr. Trump has disavowed 
on numerous occasions every comment about any form of uh, Nazi support, any white supremacist issues. Uh, it's been crystal clear. He's done that you know, every time. Is he supposed to for every tweet that comes up and every single individual across this country that says anything to have to make a comment? He has been crystal clear. I think there are some who want him to be clearer and who say that. Well, he, I don't know who that would be because he's been crystal clear. So who would they? Who would that be? When you say those who want them to be, who would they be, and what would their backgrounds be? Turns out they are some of you. Bridget Coble of Aurora says, "I am one of those people Ryan Warner speaks of, and there are many more like me. What we seek from Mr. Trump is a vocal position against hate groups and hate speech that is as rigorous and passionate and believable." as his comments that triggered so much demonstrative hate throughout our nation. We want to see and hear this on multiple occasions and look for evidence in his actions that these words are in fact true. Catherine Ference of Firestone said I ought to have followed up more vigorously. It felt like a lost opportunity. That issue, I feel in particular, is something that we're going to have to hold this administration accountable for and that we're going to have to like really stand like a firm line in the sand on civil rights. Ugh, I feel like he played right into to Blaha's hands. I don't know. It felt like a real failure of the fourth estate to not nail him down and say, if, if Trump has been so clear in these disavowals, how can these groups continue to support him? Shouldn't they be denouncing him in return? We got back in touch with Robert Blaha and asked him that question. What would you want them to say? Gee, I wish he wouldn't have said I disavow that. Well, that that just that weakens their case of trying to get whatever airtime they're trying to get through whatever mad thing they're doing that week. It just uh, weakens their position. So I'm not surprised at all on either side uh, of, of that issue that people don't have follow-up comments. In our original interview with Blaha, he said the Trump administration would work to slash regulations. That led Tom Sable of Lakewood to plead with me. Ask them for specifics regarding the elimination of regulations. Which ones? The ones that help us protect the water, the air we breathe, the protection against scammers who are stealing my elderly mother's money? Which ones? And how will that make a difference for the public at large? Meanwhile, this came in from Laura White of Englewood. She said the Blaha interview was, quote, exactly the kind of journalism I'd like to hear more often. In particular, I appreciate the continued asking of follow-up questions when the interview subject provided non-specific answers or evaded a question. It's basic journalism, but like common sense, not as common as one might hope. And finally, a correction. Robert Blaha said Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton's margin of victory over Trump in Colorado was 3%. It was actually higher, just shy of 5%, according to the Colorado Secretary of State's office. When you speak up, we listen. So keep speaking up through Facebook, CPR News, Twitter at Colorado Matters, or at CPRnews.org, our website. You can comment beneath individual articles or click contact at the top of the page. Nathan, back to you. Thanks, Ryan. There's a lot of history hidden in the beers that you drink. Egyptian slaves were paid in beer, and the Vikings didn't set sail without it. University of Colorado professor Travis Rupp knows all this through his study of beer archaeology. He joins me by phone from his home in Frederick, Colorado, just outside Longmont. Travis, welcome to the program. Hi, Nathan. Thank you very much for having me on the show. What is beer archaeology? (laughs) 
Well, it's, it's a pretty broad topic, really. Um, it's something that, that I ventured on a few years ago, only because there's, a, there's only a handful of people really even in, in the United States or North America at large that work on beer history. Um, and what I really chose to focus on was looking at the ancient world in particular because of what I study at and what I studied in college and then what I teach now at the University of Colorado Boulder. And uh, what it's become is for us is a, is a really neat venture of trying to recreate and excavate and, uh, and reproduce some of these ancient beer styles as well as uh, uh, techniques of brewing, uh, which we're actually doing today at the brewery, uh, in fact. So. What, you're recreating ancient beer recipes? Yes. I mean, a lot of what I've worked on over the last about three years or so is trying to um, find find evidence for beer production in the first place in some of these antiquarian locations. Uh, for example, with Greece and Rome, for a long period of time, it was presumed that in the world of the grape, uh, nobody was actually drinking beer. Um, and the research that I've done, as well as a lot of the time I've spent abroad in those locations, I definitely uh, think I've put a, a very good program together to prove otherwise. And so uh, we are trying to literally recreate some of those things. Uh, we in, in September, we, we produced our first beer of what we call our Ales of Antiquity series uh, that was called Nestor's Cup. That was an ancient Mycenaean beer uh, that dates to about 1500 BC. And we are currently working on um, an Egyptian beer as well as a, an ancient Peruvian beer. And, and then hopefully, yeah, go ahead. Well, Sorry, I, does it taste like the beer that we drink at the local bar or is it very different? <laughs> it's, it's quite different, to be honest. Um, the best I can describe it is a lot of the guys I work with when we, uh, when we first, because I don't necessarily know, you know, what it's going to taste like. Uh, I'm just trying to put together these old techniques, these old recipes, these old uh, ingredient lists and just excavation reports in an attempt to show exactly what these these ancient peoples were drinking. And so when we reproduced, for example, Nestor's Cup, we had no idea what it was actually going to turn out like. Um, and as, uh, as my, my cohort, my colleague uh, Andy Parker said after uh, Nestor's Cup first came out, he's like, that tastes like nothing else on this tap wall, and we have 30 beers on tap at all times. Um, so it's very different. Um, the best I can describe it is typically these beers are kind of funky. They have some really interesting uh, nose characters to them, as well as some really interesting things go on with the palate because it's all wild fermentation. Uh, they would not have been uh, so standardized like we are in our brewing process today. And, and if I'm correct, ancient beer was not carbonated. It had really low alcohol content. Is that right? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, most typically with a lot of these beers uh, that that they were creating, they probably weren't anywhere over 3% alcohol when they were initially produced, I should say. So probably somewhere between 1.5 to 3% uh, percent ABV or alcohol by volume was what you would get as the maximum. Now that will change uh, via transportation. So if some of these in, uh, in some of these instances with some of these locations where they're actually distributing beer, which I would definitely argue the Egyptians did, certainly ABV will climb over time because the yeast could re could continue to ferment or it may re-ferment at some point. 
but very, very low alcohol in those instances. And then, yes, you're right. They did not carbonate their beer uh, like we do. We force carbonate beer uh, in in the modern brewing industry. Uh, And so at at Avery, um, obviously, we do that with almost all of our beers uh, in terms of forced carbonation. But uh, what's really interesting that we've done with some of our studies is if the containers were sealed well enough, uh, Britannomyces, which is a wild yeast, does typically take over uh, at colder temps or in transportation, and it could have naturally carbonated the beer to a very light degree. But for the most part, it is an uncarbonated beer. And beer is around 8,500 8, years old, right? Yeah, that's what, that's what I would argue um, possibly, I should say, with, with a little bit of a grain of salt, just because uh, there's a constant ongoing debate in the academic world on exactly when domestication occurs. When do we actually see peoples becoming sedentary and starting to domesticate grain and animals? And in particular, a lot of research is focused on what is modern-day Syria, that region, um, because that kind of seems to be the hotbed for the development of domesticated grains. It's arguable uh, that even rye, rye was actually the first domesticated grain, and it may date as far back as 10,000 B.C. Uh, but when we start looking at wild barley, especially in its, uh, in its influx in ancient Syrian locations, there's good evidence to support that at some point around that 9,500, maybe 8,000 B.C. mark, we actually see uh, barley become a major staple. And because of that, I would like to I would like to continue my research on the idea that possibly beer can date back that far. In terms of documented resources, we probably can't predate it at this point anywhere before 5500 BC, but I think it's plausible that it was sooner than that just because we're dealing with, you know, we're dealing with cultures that weren't literate yet necessarily or if they were, it's a it's a literacy that is no longer available for our study. So how then did brewing beer come into being? Was it a mistake? Was it a, an absolute choice by these people to brew this this beer? Sure. I, in terms of the field, in terms of the way that we typically approach it, I would say it's very split. Uh, most Some people think that it was accidental. And where I have a bit of an issue with that in the research I've been doing is just that I think we often will presuppose things or we interject our own perceptions on ancient people saying, well, you know, they, they were older, you know, quote unquote, or archaic uh, as opposed to us. And therefore, uh, they, they, they didn't have the knowledge to do this in a standardized format or just because they didn't know what yeast or bacteria could do to an organic material, they just happenstance fell upon it. And that is a traditional view in a lot of instances, uh, especially with Egyptian beer. There has been a long, a long cycle of this idea that, well, maybe bread just got wet and it was in a container and somebody decided to drink the liquid just to see what it tasted like. And like, oh, that tastes good. It makes me feel good too. Maybe we should keep making it. I think that's a little, that's being a bit, too, uh, bit obtuse and not really uh, giving the ancients the credit that was due, especially since we do have in the Near East a lot of evidence to support beer production as far back as 5,000 to 55, or 5,500 to 5,000 BC. I would say that it may have been a conscious choice. Uh, the question then turns to, well, why were they producing it? Uh, and I think it's twofold. I think they may have been producing it because uh, of the nutritional value of it, because beer does have a lot of nutrients that they may not necessarily have gotten in other things. And then certainly there were regions of the ancient world where the water just simply was not 
necessarily safe to drink. You didn't and I want to drink it. You could get very sick. <laughs> exactly. Probably not. I mean, you look at you know, you look at the Nile, for example. I, it, it, yes, it's way dirtier now than it was in antiquity, but it's always been a pretty murky water, uh, as far as we can tell from accounts that the Egyptians write about. And so it's like I don't think I want to dip my bucket in the Nile and drink that water. But as it's been proven by multiple studies, you can take the dirtiest of dirty water, put it through a simple brewing process, and it will kill over 99% of the bacteria that's in that water. So I think they probably figured that out earlier than we give them credit for. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking with University of Colorado professor and Avery Brewing Company research manager, Travis Rupp. He's one of the world's few scholars focusing on beer archaeology. Are you making uh, what maybe could be called museum quality beers when you're taking these ancient recipes and recreating them? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. I, I certainly hope so. Um, I, I've... I've had the phenomenal, uh, you know, just opportunity to start working with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science uh, recently. Um, I've known Nicole Gurnow uh, there at uh, DMNS for multiple years. She's, uh, she runs their sensory lab there and has done a lot of really interesting things with the human palate as well as how beer interacts with the human palate. And uh, uh, as a result of that, um, we are actually getting to work with them more integrally now with the uh, mummies exhibit that's on display currently. Um, I reached out to Nicole and Sarah Young, who also works um, on their on their committee and their and within the uh, kind of the uh, adult education programs at uh, DMNS at Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And we are creating two beers. Actually, like I said, one today. I I literally came right up from the brew house to do this interview because we are brewing the ancient Peruvian beer today. Hmm. Um, and so we are making beers that would say are museum quality. Um, we hope um, in, in the discussions I've had with them recently that we will be able to do an event at Denver Museum of Nature and Science in January um, for the release of the Egyptian and the ancient Peruvian beer. And when I speak to ancient Peruvian, I'm, I'm, uh, what I'm re- referencing is uh, the ancient Inca uh, uh, community. Uh, in Peru uh, is what they asked me to focus on. So we are recreating those beers, and they will be going on tap there, hopefully at an event. We also will be releasing them here at Avery uh, in late December. So could there in the future be mass production of ancient beer that is uncarbonated and tastes like it did back in, in ancient times? <laughs> Certainly. That's, a, that's an awesome question. I mean, really, uh, in terms of of mass production, maybe. Um, as, you as think our, you think our palate is... is okay for that. Well, I, I do, to be honest. Uh, what's, what's been really interesting about Nestor's Cup was I didn't really know how the public would receive that beer. This ancient Mycenaean beer, a lot of people don't even know who the Mycenaeans are. They're, they're from the Bronze Age of ancient Greece. Um, and it's, it's, all, it's been very, it, it has sparked such an interest for the public that it is constantly uh, a beer that's um, that is in in the top echelon of our beers that are poured on a weekly basis. People are curious. People are interested. People want to learn why it is we have become so fascinated with beer, and has it been something that's been a staple for so long? And the question that I often get is, well, why don't we have more documentation about it? And I say, well, how many books have you read on milk? How many books have you even read on water production until we became hyper-literate in the 20th century? You know, your staple that's on your desk. Nobody's probably written a book on staples. It was just a thing that was a part of culture. It was just a thing that was in every facet of your life back in antiquity. And as a result of that, people are curious. And in terms of palatization, 
it is very palatable. People really like it. Some of my coworkers, Nestor's Cup is one of their favorites. The Egyptian beer is almost done. We just tasted it today. It's tasting really cool, really interesting, nice light-bodied beer. Uh, I think it is definitely ready for the revival that we're doing here at Avery. Travis, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Nathan. Pleasure. University of Colorado professor Travis Rupp is a beer scholar and a recreator of ancient beers. He specializes in what he calls beer archaeology. He also works with Avery Brewing Company. He joined us from his home in Frederick. Up next, taking Alzheimer patients to classical music concerts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. It's been known for a while that listening to music can help dementia patients. A new Colorado State University study goes one step further. It reveals positive effects of classical music performed in a social setting. Associate Professor Jenny Cross is the lead researcher. Cross says at best she expected to see a slower decline in cognition by going to the symphony. Good results might be no change. Our results show that people's performance on those cognitive tests was better in June than it had been in September. The study also shows a significant benefit for caregivers who often feel stressed and isolated. The research is part of a program called B-Sharp. It takes dementia patients and their primary caregivers to Fort Collins Symphony Concerts. CPR's Corey Jones met a couple in the program earlier this year. Hal Squire loves one thing above all else. Golf. (laughs) Squire takes out his golf clubs at his home in Loveland. Oh, I just like to play all of them, really. (laughs) Driving and putting and chipping. You still putt pretty good, don't you? Yeah, yeah. That's Hal's wife, Sue. You'll find golf clocks, books, and calendars inside their house. And there's a good chance golf is on the TV. The Squires even named their cat after golf terms. Bertie Mulligan. That's Bertie. Hal says he started golfing when he was 12. He's now 82, and he still gets out a few times a week when the weather's nice. In fact, it was golf that led to the first signs of Hal's memory loss. He'd come home from golf, and he wouldn't know who he'd played with. I remember one time he didn't realize that you had to plug in the lawnmower to charge the battery. He didn't understand the function of things. Sue says he also started to get lost on his way to meet friends for lunch. And one day he came home from golf, and he was really kind of upset about it. And he said, I think I'm going crazy. And that was my clue. And I said, let's go see the doctor. Doctors diagnosed Hal with Alzheimer's disease seven years ago. He's now one of 65,000 who live with the disease in Colorado. Hal forgets what day it is. He can't follow sports games very well. He doesn't drive, and Sue had to take over things like the family's finances. You're the responsible one, and it's kind of a lot to lay on one person. <laughs> but Sue feels lucky. Her husband's progression has been slow, unlike others who develop Alzheimer's at a younger age. While some struggle with severe depression, Hal is mild-mannered and easy to please. And he joins Sue for book club and sewing club. She also takes Hal to a support group that offers activities. They do things like sing and go for bus rides. Sue says it stimulates his mind. And I believe people need to see that it doesn't have to make you stay at home all the time. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. We're entering the concert hall right now. 
It's a recent Saturday night in Fort Collins. Hal and Sue are at the Lincoln Center for a Fort Collins Symphony concert. The concert is unique because of who's in the audience. Hal is part of a group called B Sharp, which launched last fall. The program takes 30 dementia patients and their primary caregivers to the symphony. Angel Hoffman chairs B Sharp. It's more than attending just the symphony. It actually involves uh, community engagement. People come to a reception prior to the symphony. Hoffman says it's important to offer an outlet to caregivers, too. Caregivers often become isolated in their caregiving role as a person progresses through their dementia. Friends don't come around as often. They may be hesitant to go out into the community and go to dinner. So B Sharp gives them a chance to get out. Participants get tickets to five concerts during the season. They don't pay a thing. Sue Squire says when they heard about the program through a support group, she was on the fence. To be honest, I wasn't sure at first it was for us. Symphony orchestra kind of scared me. It sounds highbrow and um, a little out of our realm. But when she went to the first concert with Hal, they enjoyed the music. They listened to the conductor talk about the work, compositions by Beethoven and Brahms, and they met other B-sharp participants. It was just very friendly and down-home and comfortable. Hal even stayed awake for the whole event, something Sue couldn't believe. Here's the thing. These end up being long nights. This is Hal. You see, the B-sharp program also tests the dementia patients before and after the concerts. She's going to get you all set up, okay? Okay. So have a seat. The tests assess mood, memory, and attentiveness. Hal sits across from Q. Reem Kong. She's a Ph.D. student at Colorado State University. She asks Hal a series of questions about his mood. What about happy? I'm happy. <laughs> I see definitely feel, right? I think that's pretty yeah. Then she moves on to a number sequence test. F7, L, L. You can maybe mean number first and then letter go. F7, L. Number goes first. Sue watches and sometimes tries to guide Hal when he doesn't understand. It's a little frustrating for me because I want to jump in and help him, but um, I probably helped more than I should have. Jenny Cross directs research at CSU's Institute for the Built Environment. She leads this study. Cross says music therapy is nothing new. This study is different because we're actually trying to study the impact of not just music on people, but the whole experience. Cross says that means ongoing tests in a social setting, like at the symphony. And again, it's as much about the caregivers as it is the Alzheimer's patients. The more we can do to help people, the better we're making the quality of life for everyone in the community. Cross says it's too early to draw any conclusions from the research. But there are signs that the program already has in effect. Sue Squire says even though her husband, Hal, doesn't remember the concerts... I think it sharpens him up a little bit. I think it makes him more aware and stimulates him and might make him a little more so for the even the following day or two. In fact, that happened after a recent Fort Collins Symphony concert. The Squires go to church every Sunday, and usually Sue has to remind Hal. And I didn't say anything that morning, and he got up and knew we were going to church, so we had to get ready to go to church, and that was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sue says it surprised her. Moments like this are few and far between. She knows there's no cure for Alzheimer's, so the Squires just live in the moment enjoying the simple pleasures, like music, and of course, golf. I'm Corey Jones, CPR News. 
And you can learn more about the program Be Sharp at CPRnews.org. The University of Colorado football team plays tonight in the Pac-12 championship game. The Buffaloes take on the Washington Huskies in a nationally televised high-stakes matchup that will determine the college playoff and bowl season landscape. As CPR's Vic Vela reports, it's been a long time since the Buffs have been in this position. Colorado's Golden Buffalo marching band was practicing with a little extra pep in their play this week. Natalie Robertson is a junior drum major. She's having a hard time containing her excitement when she talks about what it's like to perform at football games these days. The vibe is just um, so contagious. You can't help but feed off of it. You never get tired because you're just so ready for more. I'm ready for the next quarter. I'm ready to play the next thing because I'm just so excited for this win. Well, of course she's excited. After all, Robertson and her bandmates are about to play in front of their largest audience ever tonight the Pac-12 championship game in Santa Clara, California. The Buffs are one win away from a possible Rose Bowl appearance. That would be a first for the team. And heck, a win could even give CU a shot, a long shot, at a national title. So CU is having a remarkable year. For the first time in a long time, it's actually living up to a line in its fight song. CU knows no defeat. And that's a big change for the team. Because it's been nine years since CU last went to a bowl game. And in that time, they lost almost three times as many games as they won. Justin Guerrero is the head sports editor at the CU Independent, the school's student newspaper. He recalls covering games last year when the team had just one victory in their conference. A lot of the time it would be at halftime the game was close and then a couple quarters later the team just just crumbled in various ways. So there were a lot of instances I remember of just, it's the third quarter and there's ten or 15,000 people left in Folsom Field. That's pretty bad for a stadium with a seating capacity of more than 50,000. And the seniors who are about to play for a conference title are the same ones who suffered all those losses, game after game, during those frustrating seasons. Sefo Lufau is a senior and is the team's quarterback. I think someone asked me, um, what's cooler, going to a Pac-12 championship or a bowl game? I said, I don't know. I've never been to either. So it's, it's just an exciting time. Why are the Buffs so much better now? Well, the senior heavy team has had four years to mature under coach Mike McIntyre. And the school recently hired a new athletic director who has improved the culture for CU sports. The Buffs have also stepped up their recruiting efforts. And those changes are reviving memories of its glory days. They had some pretty awesome teams in the late 80s and 90s. The ball's in the air. Caught! Colorado scores! Time has run out. Colorado has won the game. That was the game-winning play in 1994's Miracle in Michigan when CU beat the Wolverines on a last-second Hail Mary. The man who called that play on KOA radio was announcer Larry Zimmer. He spent 42 years calling Buffs games, and he's still closely connected to the school. He says those old Buffs teams had more talent than this year's squad, but he says the 2016 Buffs are better at playing as a team. I saw the torment 
that they went through, the seniors particularly over the last three years, when uh, they came so close to winning games, they just couldn't get over the top. So it's gratifying to see the smiles on the faces, to uh, see the success that they've had. The Buffs' success has generated a lot of buzz on campus. Julio Rojas is a sophomore who says it's a big change from last year. It's different as opposed to last year. I mean, last year it was like, yeah, it was a football game, but we're probably going to lose. <laughs> now it's like, we're going to win, and we're going to keep going, and everyone's excited. Justin Guerrero, the campus sports writer from earlier, says there's a spirit and a connection on campus unlike anything he's seen before. This football team and the success they've seen has really turned into something that I think a lot of people identify with. People on campus, students, faculty, fans alike. There's this feeling that we can all kind of share in this. Win or lose tonight, the buff season has been a remarkable success. But if they do win, imagine how sweet that fight song will sound to the players, students, and long-suffering CU fans. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to our audio engineers, Matt Hers and Michael Hughes, my director, Stephanie Wolf, producers, Michelle P. Fulcher and Nancy Lofholm. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from Colorado Public Radio. Have a great weekend.